Welcome to History Hub's Educational Resources, a podcast series for all history students, young and old, from the School of History at University College Dublin. For more information on the series, go to historyhub.ie. My name is Dr Jennifer Wellington. I lecture Modern History in UCD's School of History, and I'm the series editor of History Hub's Educational Resources. In this episode, Professor Robert Gerwarth is going to talk to you about fascist regimes in interwar Europe. In this brief lecture, I will discuss how and why many European countries experienced a crisis of democracy and a gradual slide towards authoritarian regimes in the so-called interwar years. Uh, the interwar period, of course, are the years between the end of the First World War in 1918 and the beginning of the Second World War in 1939. In particular, I will focus on the rise of fascism. After defining what fascism actually is, I will explain its historical origins, as well as the reasons why many people, not only in Germany, but also in Italy, Spain, Central Eastern Europe, even some people in Britain and the United States, increasingly fell out of love with democracy and found fascism more appealing than democracy in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Secondly, I will talk about the peculiarities of German and Italian fascism. This is important because even though German and Italian fascism had the same historical roots and the regimes of Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler collaborated before and during the Second World War, they were not identical. So what exactly is fascism? The term fascism is generally used to describe an ideology or a set of beliefs that seeks to place the biologically defined nation above all other sources of loyalty. In other words, for fascism, the nation and race are far more important than other differences between people, say, religion, class, or gender. Fascism is the most extreme form of nationalism because it views all other loyalties to God, to one's family, or other as secondary. It is aggressively expansionist in nature and obsessed with racial differences and racial hierarchies. Along with liberalism, conservatism, and communism, fascism is one of the most influential political ideologies that shaped Europe's 20th century. Fascism had its peak between 1918 and 1945 and its breakthrough in European politics owed much to the Great War and the political and social crises which the First World War prompted. In other words, its success in either Germany or indeed Italy cannot be explained without reference to the Great War and the socioeconomic upheavals triggered by it. So where exactly did this ideology come from? As I just explained, fascism was clearly a product of the Great War and the multiple crises that followed in its wake. Nevertheless, forerunners of fascism appeared already in the decades before 1914, but they were limited in size and influence. Some movements could be called proto-fascist in the sense that they anticipated elements of European fascism in the 20th century. Hitler, in particular, drew on a range of ideas that had been percolating uh, ever since the second half of the 19th century. One of them is generally known as social Darwinism. 
Social Darwinism is the idea that Charles Darwin's principle of the survival of the fittest in nature can be extended and applied to human societies. If Darwin had argued that competition between individual organisms over which of them is fittest for survival is the driving force in evolutionary change, social Darwinists believed that the same applies to human societies. Competition between individuals, groups, nations, or ideas were the driving force behind the progress of mankind, or so social Darwinists believed. Such ideas were propagated long before the First World War by influential thinkers like the English philosopher Herbert Spencer, and they very quickly made an impact on political debates in Germany as well. A second important strand of thought which eventually informed the ideology of uh, fascism emanated uh, from uh, another scientific work, and it's called eugenics. Drawing on the work of Darwin, his cousin, Francis Gelton, in the late 1860s began to develop theories of improving human genetic qualities, most importantly with respect to the eradication of hereditary illnesses. In Gelton's view, social institutions such as welfare and insane asylums were allowing inferior humans to survive and to reproduce artificially at levels faster than the more superior humans in society. If corrections were not taken soon, society would, according to that theory, uh, soon be awash with inferior people. Quickly, such ideas were amalgamated into theories of racial purity. In other words, in order to preserve the purity of one's race, uh, one needed to encourage breeding between superior humans and discourage reproduction of lesser people. Before the outbreak of the First World War, before 1914, these ideas were still mainly relevant to groups on the fringes of public discourse. And it seemed unlikely that any political party focusing on such ideas would ever get elected. What changed the situation uh, was indeed the First World War, which radicalized uh, politics in most of the combatant states. In the German case, of course, the uh, defeat in the First World War also contributed to the radicalization of politics, even though the Nazi uh, party did not play a significant role in German politics until the Great Depression of 1929. Nonetheless, the peace treaties, for example, the peace treaty of Versailles between the Allies and Germany, but also the economic difficulties of the interwar period allowed political movements of the far right uh, who believed in these ideas that I just uh, explained to become increasingly relevant. This was particularly the case in countries that had either lost the war, such as Germany, or in countries such as Italy, which had won the war but felt that they had lost the peace. In both of these countries, the established parties were weakened over time and discontent with the political and economic crisis was channeled into new extreme movements from the radical right and indeed the radical left, um, because after the Russian Revolution succeeded uh, in 1917, 
uh, this provided encouragement to a whole range of communist parties that were founded across Europe uh, in uh, and around 1918. It is therefore little surprising that fascism, but also communism, was particularly successful in those countries that were unsatisfied with the outcome of the First World War. And here I'd like to explain some of the similarities and differences between uh, Italy and Germany in some greater detail. Let's begin with Italy. After all, Italy became the first country in the world that got a fascist government under uh, Benito Mussolini in 1922. So what were the preconditions for fascism's rise there? Italy had entered the First World War against Germany and Austria in 1915. The war, however, didn't create the kind of national unity dreamt of by nationalists. On the contrary, the war increased class and gender conflict. The Italian Socialist Party maintained its opposition to the war throughout, unlike any of its European counterparts. And throughout the war, there were numerous strikes in Italy organized by the socialist movement and its trade unions. Italy paid a very high price for entering the war on the Allied side. Over 600,000 men were killed, and Italians uh, expected compensation once the Central Powers, Germany, Turkey, Bulgaria, and Austria-Hungary, had been defeated in 1918. In the peace treaty, some territory was won from Austria, but Italian nationalists were outraged by what they called a mutilated victory. In other words, they expected a great deal more. Discontent with the peace treaties and Italy's territorial gains um, was exacerbated by continued social unrest in Italy, which was partly inspired, of course, by the Russian Revolution of 1917. This in turn frightened many of the middle classes uh, who believed that uh, Bolshevism was going to triumph in Italy. In the years 1918 to 1920, which are often referred to as the red years in Italian history, uh, there were massive strikes with factory occupations, which were very common, particularly in the cities of the north, while in the Po Valley and in the south, landless laborers simply occupied uncultivated land. In the general elections of 1919, the socialists made major gains and the middle classes became increasingly worried about the possibility of a communist takeover. This was pretty much the context in which uh, fascism thrived and became a mass movement. The leader of the fascist movement uh, was, of course, Benito Mussolini, who had first come to national attention in 1912, so before the First World War, uh, as the leader of the Socialist Party's radical wing. Mussolini had initially uh, advocated that Italy uh, should remain neutral in the Great War, but changed his mind in 1915 and began to argue that Italy should indeed uh, join the war effort. From 1915 onwards, Mussolini sided with the nationalists and was henceforth um, regarding the nation as a far more important political force than social class. In March 1919, he founded the Italian fascist movement, 
which relied very heavily on the support of ex-soldiers. The fascist program combined extreme nationalism with anti-clericalism and anti-socialism. Um, the guiding idea of this program was that uh, the mobilization of all Italians, workers and employers, peasants and landowners, um, would lead to a kind of secular but superior nationalist community. Mussolini very quickly won the support of many conservative small farmers uh, who agreed that the authorities in Italy were not protecting them enough from the left. Simultaneously, fascist squads began a violent campaign of intimidation uh, against socialists in the countryside, and many hundreds were killed in these street fights. By 1922, the Italian fascists had effectively taken over uh, the administration of law and order in many rural areas. And at the same time, the fascist movement continued to grow, so that in 1922, Mussolini's movement had a quarter of a million members. Yet Italian fascism was still not a force in Parliament. It won only 35 seats in the 1921 elections. So how did Mussolini come to power? Italian fascism came to power through a combination of pressure from the streets and support from the country's elites, notably in business, uh, in the agrarian world, but also in politics. In the summer of 1922, uh, just a few months before uh, Mussolini came to power, um, there was a noticeable uh, growth of fascist grassroots pressure for the capture of power. And in the autumn, plans were laid for the so-called March on Rome to put pressure on the liberal Italian government. They indeed were faced with a difficult choice at this point. If they resist, resisted uh, Mussolini's demands to hand over the power, uh, the army and police, which had proved rather ambivalent in their attitude, might have refused to fight the fascists. And even if the fascists were defeated, then the prime beneficiaries could be the radical left. So in the end, uh, on the 29th of October 1922, uh, Mussolini emerged triumphant from that crisis as he was appointed Prime Minister of Italy, the first fascist Prime Minister worldwide. There has been quite a, a lot of disagreement among historians about the exact nature of Italian fascism and the role of Mussolini in particular. Some historians have even suggested that Mussolini's rule over Italy was a benign dictatorship. However, this is only true in a very narrow sense and only when measured against the Nazi dictatorship in Germany that began in 1933. So in some ways, Mussolini was lucky to have Hitler around. It should not be forgotten, however, that Mussolini's regime was directly responsible for the deaths of over one million people. Mussolini himself was keen to restore Italy as the dominant uh, country in the Mediterranean in the same way that ancient Rome had dominated that part of the world. He believed that the conquest of new territory was the best means to resolve economic problems. He also, like Hitler, regarded war as something intrinsically good for the nation. Expansion and war were justified by the argument that history was essentially a Darwinian struggle between nations, and also 
by the need for Italy to expand its colonial empire. As a consequence, Italian armies invaded Abyssinia in 1935, fought on the side of Franco's right-wing alliance in the Spanish Civil War in 1936-39, and occupied Albania in 1939. In the following year, Italy participated in the invasion of France just before the French surrender to Germany, and in 1941, Italy invaded Greece. None of Mussolini's numerous foreign policy adventures could have been undertaken without the support of the second and in many ways more powerful fascist state in Europe. That is, of course, Nazi Germany. The Nazi party led by Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany in January 1933 when Hitler was appointed as chancellor by the German president, Paul von Hindenburg. So what did Nazism in Germany stand for and why did a substantial percentage of the German electorate turn to Hitler, a man without any experience of government whatsoever before becoming chancellor of the largest state in Europe? In answering this question, it seems worthwhile to look at the political program which Hitler offered to the German people. This program expanded in Hitler's 1924 manifesto, Mein Kampf, My Struggle, contained two fundamental ideas that somewhat relate to uh, social Darwinism and uh, eugenics, which I explained earlier on. For Hitler, the two fundamental ideas were the racial doctrine and the quest for living space. These two components, the racial doctrine and the quest for living space, provided the basis for Hitler's anti-Semitic and expansionist world vision. So he, in other words, believed that history was essentially a permanent, merciless struggle between different races for living space, so that the ever-growing population could find a new living space in the future. He also believed that there were scarce resources and that the world population was growing, and as a result of that, conflict was inevitable. This fight could only be won by a people which maintained and defended its racial purity, so Hitler believed. In other words, Germany would have to conquer new living spaces, notably in Eastern Europe, and it would have to remove lesser population groups, notably uh, the Jews in particular. Those were Hitler's ultimate political objectives. So why did this program then appeal to so many people? Well, I would argue the answer to this question is it didn't really. Hitler's party would never have become the strongest political movement in Germany on the grounds of those two programmatic points. Hitler knew that in order to build up a mass base of popular support, he would have to tone down his radical anti-Semitism and his war rhetoric. And in the late 1920s and early 1930s, that was precisely what he did. Instead, he focused much more on the promise that he would put an end to the economic crisis and the ailing political system of Weimar democracy, and that he would lead the German people to a new height. There can be no doubt that this promise appealed to many Germans during the interwar crisis, particularly after the onset of the Great Depression, in 1929, which was the greatest economic crisis in modern times. Before the Great Depression, 
The Nazis had been a marginal splinter party in German politics, and it is unlikely that Hitler would ever have come close to the halls of power without the economic fallout of the Depression. Within little more than two years, more than one German worker in three was unemployed, and millions more were on precarious short-term contracts or reduced wages. The unemployment insurance system broke down completely, leaving increasing numbers of people destitute. The crisis also benefited the German communists, whose vote rose steadily until it reached 17%, giving the party 100 seats in the German parliament, the Reichstag, in November 1932. The communists' violent revolutionary rhetoric, and here we do have a, an interesting parallel to the situation in uh, Italy, uh, terrified the country's middle classes, who knew only too well what had happened to their counterparts in Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. So they felt that increasingly the choice was between Hitler's National Socialists and the Communists, and they knew who they would vote for in that situation, which partly explains why some of the more traditional uh, conservative uh, middle-class parties evaporated uh, after 1929, and many of their previous voters shifted to the Nazi party. In this climate, Hitler promised different, at times even contradictory things, to different audiences. The Weimar Republic, which seemed unable to solve the economic crisis, had to be got rid of, and the people had to be united once more in a national community that knew no parties or classes. Germany, Hitler promised, would reassert itself on the international scene, renounce the Versailles Treaty, and become a world power again. That's what he essentially promised. Nonetheless, it is worth bearing in mind that even at the height of its popularity before 1933, the Nazi party never won an overall majority. Hitler's first cabinet, formed in January 1933, was a coalition government with a number of conservative politicians who believed that they could control Hitler and use his party to implement a conservative social agenda. Of course, they were wrong. Hitler had no intention to be reined in and was to get rid of his coalition partner as well as all other political parties in the six months following his appointment as chancellor, a period which is often referred to by historians as the seizure of power. By mid-1933, Germany had become a dictatorship with all parties except the Nazi party banned or dissolved and many opposition leaders in prison or dead. What followed was one of the most terrible dictatorships in history, leading to the Second World War and the Holocaust, which is why it is so important to understand the ideas underpinning Nazism and the way in which democracy in Germany was overcome with terrible consequences. 